0: I'm going to miss that epic soundtrack to that bumper video right there. Thank you. So, there was this guy who was stranded on an island, and he'd been there for more than a year. And finally, a boat pulls up, and, and he's so excited he's going to be, he's going to be rescued. And uh, he was excited because he'd been there such, so, for such a long time that he'd, he'd sort of established himself on this island, and he, he wanted to show his rescuers around. And, and he brought them up to this hill, and on the top of this hill, there were three buildings. And he said, that middle one right there, he said, that's my house. And he showed them his house, and, and they were pretty impressed, actually, at, at his, his workmanship. And then he showed them the building to the right, and he said, this is the church that I go to. And he showed them the church, and it was great. And they said, well, what's that other church? He said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> now, there's a lot of applications that story, right? But the one I would like to draw this morning is the fact that in our culture today, we are easily bored and we are easily restless in a lot of things in life. Uh, Many people aren't happy with staying in one place for very long. You know, contentment is a highly prized virtue in our world, and it is something that it seems like we chase after, but is often elusive. Uh, I wonder what your level of contentment is as you sit here today. Are you satisfied with your standard of living, or, uh, with your current set of circumstances, or do you continue day after day or day after day to search for the elusiveness of, of dreams or, or that, that I finally made it thought? Well, today in our passage in Philippians, it's, it's the very end. If you would turn there in your Bibles with me, that would be great. Philippians chapter 4, Paul lets us in on an actual not-so-secret secret. Now, our family uh, has owned two family cars in the lifetime of our family. This year, we will celebrate 24 years of marriage, and in that 24, as far as our family car is concerned, we've owned two. Okay, um, I, I ha- we had the same car for 21 years. I bought it brand new in 1992, last century, right? Um, and... And uh, it, it was paid for, it ran great, it was economical, and, but there were those times in that 21 years of owning that car where we thought, ah, you know, maybe we should get something new, you know, something that looks better or, or something, you know. I mean, it, I don't, is that car even in the parking lot? Your dad's not here today. But that car's still on the road. You see the little blue four-door Ford Escort wandering around town. That was it. Uh, 285,000 miles was the last I knew that it had on it. Um, and, you know, I was actually, in the end, I was sort of hesitant to get a new car because what if it isn't as good as that one was? Because, honestly, some of you would say, well, for a Ford, how, how, how would you keep it for that long? Some of you would say, yay, right? Um, it, it, was a, it was an incredibly reliable car. But sometimes we would get a serious case of the discontent. You know, it's not good enough, whatever. And we would start thinking about it and think, well, yeah, but with a new car often comes a car payment, and there's no car payment here, and, and really did very little to it. I think, I think three batteries in 21 years total, one starter, one. I wonder how many times that car started in 20, 24 years. Um, so discontent is a big problem in our culture. In fact, it's been a problem for almost all of eternity, right? I mean, forever. Um, it started with Satan, discontent. Then it moved to Adam and Eve and, and followed the life of, of our race, of the human race, Israel, freed from Egypt, find themselves in the desert, God feeding them, become discontent. Gee, we wish we were back in, in slavery. And, and, in, and then to the Rolling Stones. Right? Right? You know what I'm talking about. I can't get no satisfaction, right? Well, I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. Um, Having a serious case of discontent, we try to find contentment. We are in search of it, pursuing it with everything that we have. Does your life feel empty? And you know what I'm talking about? You've been searching and searching to fill whatever emptiness it is, this feeling that you're missing something. And so you just continue to search and try and try and try and the things that you try haven't given you satisfaction. What you've been doing just hasn't been working. So let's open our passage up this morning. You've already turned there and let's begin reading in verse 10. The word of God. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Remember, Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians and and to us as well. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need." Not not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul says to the Philippians, you know what? Thanks for giving. Thank you. Thanks for giving. Paul says that at the very beginning of his ministry, at the very early years, that the Philippians, they were, they were with him. They were passionate about spreading the gospel throughout the region, and they supported him. They supported Paul financially. Um, they were extremely generous in their support. Um, this is true, I think, and would be said by many of our own very missionaries who are overseas and, and spread out across the world. Africa and Europe um, used to have South America, now in Canada— um, they would say, if it weren't for you and your financial giving, we couldn't be where we're at. And, and they would say to you, and they do often, and we hear it at the annual meeting, and our missions team, I'm sure, gets letters from them, thank you for your support. 21% of every offering given on every Sunday goes to missions across the world and um, across the United States and even in our own backyard that's what was going on here. Churches supporting ministers. There, and there, there are many ministries that come from this church family. Overseas, here, Project One. That's going to be here before you know it. And, uh, and we want to be ready for that. We just, just last week, we had some guys go do some work for somebody that couldn't do it themselves. They got left in a pickle, and, uh, and they put sheetrock up in, in her house. And uh, thank you forgiving. He received aid from the Philippians again and again, Paul says in this passage. And, And he qualifies this with saying, I'm not saying all of this because I want money. I just want to let you know thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Not that I'm looking for a gift, he says in verse 17, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Paul is saying that giving is a good thing. Giving is a good thing. In fact, our gifts, our tithes, our offerings are pleasing to God, Paul says. Um, We're commanded in the Bible to give to God, to give back a portion of what he has blessed us with. Um, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 outline four things that help us conclude how we should give to support ministry. And just really quick, I'm not going to explain them. Paul says that we should give sacrificially, that we should give regularly, that we should give cheerfully, and that we should give proportionally. It's not the size of the gift, it's the size of the sacrifice, Paul says. Jesus talked about that when the the widow was giving all that she had. And when we do these things, Paul says, that those are gifts, a fragrant offering. It's a form of worship. It's a form of worship. So giving is worship. But today's message isn't about money. (sighs) All of you are breathing a sigh of relief. It's not. Now, I wouldn't apologize if I was giving a message on money, but um, because God commands us to give, but that's not the point of Paul's message in the book of Philippians, so we're not going to go there today. Paul says to the Philippians, and I believe he could say to us right now, you know what? Thanks for giving. Thanks for being generous. Um, God provides for our needs, and, and we help provide for others as it, it comes along. Maybe, um, maybe people need help because of a physical need. They're unable to to help themselves. Maybe it's because financial, maybe it's because of a circumstance in life that they didn't choose. Um, but we can continue to give. Thank you for giving. Now, you know, true contentment must be a secret because we continue to search and search and search for it and we can't find it. And we, um, so the second point in your notes this morning is that true contentment is a secret. It is a secret. So let me define contentment, and I want to define it this way. Contentment is simply an inner calmness when it comes to life. Um, you've, you've pushed back from a table, right, a meal, given that you haven't eaten too much, and you just feel, ah, you know, I'm not hungry. I'm, I'm pretty content. That's, that's about eating. That's, that's the kind of contentment, inner calmness I'm talking about within, within every aspect of our life. Now, it's not complacency. It's not saying, I don't care. I'm just going to just whatever. you know. Because there are people like that too. They don't have a care in the world because they don't have a care in the world. And uh, they're not really content. They just don't care. That's not what, that's not what we're talking about. Discontentment can be hard to find. So we conclude, since we haven't found it, that it's hidden and that we can't find it. Or that we're looking under in the wrong place, so we look elsewhere. And, but we continue to look in the wrong places. Now, when it comes to happiness, the U.S. ranks number 13 in the world in happiness and contentment according to the World Happiness Report. Did you even know there was such a thing? The World Happiness Report. You can Google it. There's an organization that that, that that figures this stuff out. Now, we're down a place. We were actually number 12 back in 20... I think it was 13 when they last produced their report. It just came out last year, the next one. So we're not as happy and we're not as content in the United States as we were compared to all other places. Now, you're probably wondering who was number one. Well, number one, um, this year, climbing three spots and overtaking Iceland... Is Denmark. That's Denmark. I don't know what that means. Those Danes, you know, they're just, I don't know. We're content, I guess. Um, So let me ask you this. Let's get a little bit personal. Seriously. How content are you? On a scale of one to ten, ten being, you know what, I'm content. And one being, I just, no. No possible way. Where would you fall on that timeline? I wonder how many of you in here would say that you're very content with where your life is and where, where you are. Now, our culture, in fact, our, our stability as a nation seems to run on how much money you and I spend, right? I mean, that's, that's how they figure it. In fact, uh, a few years back, our government did this thing to try to stimulate the economy, right? Do you remember this? And they decided that, that in order to stimulate the economy, we needed to spend more money. And so in order to stimulate it, we needed what? More money. So they spent billions of dollars, right? Giving money away. <clears throat> How did that work for us? Little secret, okay? This is a side note, actually. You can't spend your way out of debt. It doesn't work. You can't do it. And you will only become more discontent and more discontent and more discontent. Thanks, Zach. Now, another aspect that we are influenced by every day, every moment of the day, from when you probably wake up and open your eyes, the advertising industry in our culture. Um, they are really, really, really good at what they do. And the the intent of an advertisement is to make you discontent. It's the whole purpose. It's to convince you that you need whatever it is that they have that they're selling. So they want to create in you this sense that, man, either I got to keep up with the Joneses because they have this and I don't, or man, this would really, really make my life better. So I need to spend money on this. And we end up with millions and millions and millions of people with the discontents. Discontentment is prominent because we've bought into two myths. Okay, two myths. I think I put these in your notes. The first one is this. The myth of the itch. The myth of the itch. Anybody ever had a mosquito bite? Yeah. I have the ladies in my household are allergic to mosquitoes. I mean, when they get a mosquito bite, it like swells up. You don't want to get bit up here because it looks like I punched them. So what, what do you do with a mosquito bite? You scratch it, right? What do you tell your kids to do with mosquito bites? Don't scratch it. Why? Because it doesn't work right? You scratch the itch. So what we have become is a whole country of people trying to scratch the itch that we have. And you need to know (coughs) that the greater the itch, the more expensive the scratch becomes, right? whether it's um, a computer, a new computer, or the next best phone, or some tool that you want, or a vacation, or a house, or a car, or a truck, or a combine, whatever it is that you see the neighbor has that that you think would make your life better, and that you're convinced by that, you know, dealer that you really need this, it, it just grows and grows and grows. So, So that's, that's the myth of the itch. The second myth is this, the myth of the more. Okay, the myth of the more. And, or I also like to call this the law of diminishing returns. Okay, this, this isn't one of Einstein's laws. Um, but it is the law of diminishing returns. And it says this, we, we do something, you know, maybe, it, maybe, you know, we all have bucket lists, right? And, and usually our buckets get bigger and deeper, the further down the list they go. You know, the first bucket list is like visit another country or go to another state maybe that's not Nebraska. Um, you know, um, something like that. And then the buckets get deeper. They become like, you know, learn to fly an airplane or jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Why anybody would want to do that? I don't know. Um, you know, go bungee jumping in in Royal Gorge or something. You know, they get they get bigger and they get deeper because... When we check our buckets off, we need that next best thing, that next greatest adventure, that, that, that more exciting thing. That's this, I don't know if it's a human condition or what, but that's, that's what it's like. Now, there's a king in the Bible, Solomon, who could have been called the king of more. Um, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and basically the book of Ecclesiastes is the book of more. Um, He took everything that everyone could ever have and want to the extreme. He took it to the extreme, and he got more, and he got and and more and more. You, some of you, are in the process of building a house. Some of you have before. Some of you have purchased new ones. That sort of thing. King Solomon's house took 150,000 construction workers. Thirteen years to build. Some of you thought you were behind and, on and off schedule. Thirteen years, hundred and fifty thousand workers. What kind of house is that? What you? I don't even think he could live in every room. You know, in his lifetime, probably. But it goes on. He had lavish gardens built. In fact, I read that they would rival the seven wonders of the world. They were amazing, unreal unprecedented, and the parties that he threw, whoa, you talk about a party. People couldn't wait to get that invitation from King Solomon to come to one of his parties. Sex, you know, many people in our culture try to find satisfaction in sex. Um, So did Solomon. He had 1,000 concubines and wives. Yeah, Jerry, I I just think that myself. A thousand. His income? I didn't do the math on this, but his income was 25 tons of gold a year. I don't even think our NFL and pro sports figures who are way overpaid make, make that much money. 25 tons of gold. I don't know what that would be in today's market and success, he took Israel to a great place of prominence. Um, it, it, God blessed Israel when King David and King Solomon were were kings. So what was his conclusion after all of that? What did King Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 12.8? It's meaningless. I did all of this. I searched for all of this. It's meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. In, in, in our the way that our culture says that we should find contentment, he should have been the most contented man on the planet. But he wasn't. He was the most discontented man on the planet. Which, if we observe our culture and the people that make lots of money, like Hollywood stars and all of them and the, the, the professional players, oftentimes they're not content. I mean, honestly, we need more, we need more men in those, in those uh, places like Gary Kubiak. I know he re- retired, but, or maybe it was under pressure, I don't know. But here's the thing. He was the backup quarterback to John Elway. That's what he did, and he was fine with that. And he was assistant coach at, at the Denver Broncos for, for years and never seeming to aspire to be a head coach because he was content where he was. His needs were provided for. He he was spending ample time with his family. I assume um, those kinds of things. He he. I just I've just always thought that he was a great example. You never heard about him, you know, trying to put thumbtacks in John Elway's shoes so that he could start a football game or something like that. You know, he he never did anything like that. Um, You know, contentment is tough to find. And the only more we get, I want you to write this down. The only more we get from getting more is wanting more. The only more we get from getting more is wanting more. Now, in his book, Counterfeit God, Tim Keller said, when people get discontented, they blame one of four things. I think maybe maybe you've done this in the last week. They blame one of four things just really quick. Okay, they blame things, first of all. We look for more things. We, we conclude that the reason we are discontent is because we have the wrong things or we don't have enough of the right things. So we blame things. We also blame ourselves. Maybe you have said, and you've been discontent in, in your life, you think, well, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And you try to put the blame on yourself. There must be something wrong with me. The third thing uh, that we often do is we blame the world. We we blame the culture. It's it's really not about me, it's about the world. I, I'm never gonna trust a dream to anything that could possibly take it away. You know, maybe something happened at work or a friend broke your trust. Yep, see? It's their fault, it's the world's fault that I'm discontent. And the fourth thing Tim Keller says is that we blame our relationship with God. We point our fingers at God and we say, God, it's all your fault that I feel the way that you do. You made me who I am and you made me this way. Come on. And we're looking for contentment in all the wrong places. It's a secret. It's hard to find. But we can find it. Paul found the secret. In fact, he... he, he he tells us about this secret that he found in a dirty, rotten place called a prison cell. With nothing. Nothing. Paul says that we can all find it. Paul, before he went to prison, was at the pinnacle of his ministry. You look at look at a map sometime and see how much of the world Asia covers. That's, that's where Paul took the gospel. To all of Asia. He, he was a master communicator. He could, he could speak to Jews and Greeks and Romans and slaves and kings, and he spoke to all of them. He was an incredible author. He wrote 13 of the New Testament books that, that we have in our Bibles right now. In fact, if, if they had been keeping track of bestseller lists when Paul was alive, he would have topped the bestseller list for over 2,000 years. Again, Paul's in prison, and all of those things are gone, and yet Paul says, I'm content. I'm content. See, that's what I want. I want to, in all of my life and everything that's going on, I want to say, I just want to take a deep breath and say, you know, it's good. I'm content. Could you say that today? Look at verse 12. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now remember, in other passages, um, I think even earlier on in Philippians, Paul says, he, he talks about... His troubled life. He, he, he's been shipwrecked. He's been abandoned. He's been hungry. He's been, you know, all of these things. He's been threatened he's, by life and limb, yet Paul says here, I am content, and, and I, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. In verse 19, he says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the secret is revealed. See, really, it's need versus plenty, right? In any and every situation, Paul says, well-fed or hungry. Oftentimes we think that, you know, I'm discontented because I don't have much. But that if you think about your life and you think about those times when you had much, and you didn't worry about what you were, whether you were going to eat three meals that day, and you didn't worry about whether you were going to make the house payment, and you didn't worry about whether you, know, you were going to go to the lake that weekend, you still, somewhere in the back of your mind, there was something that you're like, there's something I'm missing, I want something else, I want something else, I want something else. You don't have to, in, for me, you don't have to walk through Menards very long to start wishing you had things that you don't have. Maybe for some of you it's eBay or Amazon or whatever. or, And I'm telling you, they're good. They're really, really, really good. I went to a website this week to check something out. I, I, I'm telling you, I didn't enter my email address. I didn't enter my phone number. And all of a sudden, all of these advertisements for this thing start showing up in my Facebook feed. Poof, out of nowhere. They're good. They're good at what they do. And we got to fight it. We got to fight it because this, there's, there's no joy in life. There's no joy in living a discontented life, right? I mean, this, this book is about joy and peace. And Paul says we can have it even if you're in prison. Paul says that we can have this. So it's need versus plenty. It's possible. It can be learned. We can follow Paul's example. Um, On hearing the news that she had breast cancer, Joni Erickson Tata said this, yes, cancer is alarming, but God is going to use this to stretch our faith, brighten our hope, and strengthen our witness to others. As human beings, we have been created with a God-shaped vacuum inside of us that only God can fill. He's the only one that can fill it. So many people try to fill it with other things, but he is the only one that can fill this. And then he also created us for relationship because he's a relational God. And we've been created with this people-shaped vacuum. So if your God-shaped vacuum doesn't have God in it, you're out of balance and you're searching for something probably in the wrong places that you can't find. If your people-shaped vacuum is empty, you're probably searching for something and generally speaking, we search for it in the wrong place. We're, 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 we, we get out of balance. Um, Jesus was asked one time, what's the most important commandment? I mean, they were, they were following commandments all the time. And they're like, hey, let's just boil this down to you know, one. Let's, let's go for that one. I don't know if that's what they were thinking, but Jesus provided a simple answer in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. He said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And if you think about it, you think about the Ten Commandments, and honestly, I think if you think about every other law or commandment that God ever gave us in the Old Testament, they fit under those two categories. And Jesus says, it's simple. It's simple. Love God. And love each other. And oftentimes, the not loving each other puts us in a position of being discontent. It does me. Ugh. When I know that somebody is, is um, opposing me or doesn't like me, it, it, I can't sleep at night. I, things, it's tough. I become discontent. Love God and love people. Jesus said that he didn't come into this world to condemn it in John chapter 3, verse 17. Because we already stand condemned. That, that's useless because we already are. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus said that he came to pay the price for our waywardness. Jesus came for that reason. Because there had to be a perfect sacrifice. Nobody could, could, could earn their salvation through following the law. That is obvious. But we try, right? There's lots of people. There's some religions in our world that say if, you, if you're just good enough... And you, can, and you can tip that balance to the good side, you'll get in. You don't ask anybody on the street, hey, do you think you'll go to heaven? Yeah, I think so. I, I hope so. Well, why? Why do you think? Well, because, you know, I think I've done a good, an, a, enough good in my life. Have you, how many times have you heard that answer? Jesus is very clear. It's impossible. You can't. The only way to heaven is through Christ Jesus. Period. I, that's so narrow-minded, Pastor Dave. Yeah, well, talk to God. Because that's not my mind. It's his. You know, we, we try to get significance. We, we try filling the void in our life with our kids or our parents or our work or, our, or sports or drugs. Some, something. But, but we are imperfect, right? We can't accomplish it on our own. And our search for love and contentment will always end up empty. But Paul says the contentment can be learned. He learned it, and so can we. He says in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Who is that him? That is Jesus Christ. I can do everything through Christ and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus to our God and father be glory forever and ever amen notice he didn't say I can do anything through him because I you may disagree with me but I don't believe that anybody on this planet if they set their mind to do anything they can do it I don't I don't believe that God is the the, the God of the impossible yes and if he says you to do that And it falls into that anything category. Fine, okay, yes. But if you just decide, I'm going to be a nuclear physicist. I don't care how much want to, that I would, for that, I'm telling you, short of a miracle, which could happen, it ain't going to happen, no matter how much try I put into it. Paul says, I can do everything, and I think it's everything that God has put before him and that he's experienced in his life, he can, he can do it all, but not in and of himself, but in Christ Jesus. I can do all of this. He's learned it. It's part of growing up in Christ. In Christ. Please don't forget that. It's in him we must put our reliance. It's on him we must put all of our anxieties and worries. Any of you that did the further study last week, you saw. Man, you talk about, we, we, we looked at it last week. As far as anxiety in our culture is concerned, it's high. It's one of the reasons we're number 13 in the world and not number one. You would think the number one prosperous nation, group of, piece of earth on the planet would be number one. But it's not. We're not. It's in him we must put all of our anxieties and worries and concerns. So, so I want to close today with four, th- four or five things, five specific things that you and I can do to be content. The first thing that you need to do and that I need to do is we need to expose the lie in our life. Expose the lie. You see, Satan wants to kill and destroy us. He wants to ruin your life and he wants to ruin mine. And he's a real bless you he's real and and we must discipline ourselves to to fight this every day he wants to convince you that you want this or that you want that or this would be better or the grass is greener on the other side of the fence if you're a husband or wife If you only had this person, or if if your wife only treated you the way that this woman does, well, guess what? In my opinion, a woman that treats a married man that that way, you better be throwing some red flags up thinking, okay, so what happens, you know? So you get divorced, you get remarried to somebody who, whatever, and then, and then the question then becomes and the anxiety starts creeping in. Well, they did this 10 years ago with me. What, what's going to keep her from doing this or him from doing this now? But we're convinced by Satan that, that, that it's going to make our life better. We have to expose the lie. Call out to God to reveal the lies that are in your life today. If you've been listening to lies Surrender those. List, just when you get home, maybe even think. think God, have a conversation. Father, is, is there, are there any lies that I'm believing in my life right now? Take the time to do it. And then just listen. Let Him speak. The second thing is this we need to practice cake frosting discipline. Cake frosting discipline. What would happen if you had a steady diet? of wedding cake frosting. Some of you are like, I'd be in heaven. I love cake frosting, especially wedding cake frosting. What would happen if that's all we ate? I think, I think before that, I think there's probably other ramifications other than just gaining weight. If all we ate was cake frosting, well, we need to practice cake frosting discipline. You see, cake frosting is really good, but we got to be disciplined to not take too much. Some people, when they go to a wedding, they want the corner piece, right? You know who you are. Can I get that one over there? You rush to get in line first because there's only four. <laughs> Unless it's a round cake. Then what? Every piece is a corner, Right? Well, I like cake frosting, and I could do without cake frosting. See, I don't have to have it. I don't actually, in fact, what generally happens at weddings that we go to when, when the cake has really thick cake frosting on it is I scrape it off and put it on my wife's plate, and she eats it. Yeah, because she loved it. You know who you are. There's people in here who have texted me, hey, I can't make the wedding, but can you bring me a piece of wedding cake home? See, we need to practice this kind of discipline. When it comes to things in our lives, we need to remember that everything we have is a gift from God. And we need to decide in our minds that we're fine if we have them and we're fine if we don't. But that's not what the advertising industry is based on. That's not what our culture says. That's not what the lie says. But that's the truth. We've got to to make that decision. This message should have been before Christmas, really. Really? right? Because, you know, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. We can always count on him to be the same forever and ever and ever and ever. He will never fail us. He will never let us down. He will be with us to the very end of the age, just as he said. Number three, get some rest. That's something I need to do You see, I'm convinced that the more we run in life, the more that we say yes to. If you just felt a tinge of guilt in your heart, you need to get some rest and you need to learn to say no. Because the more that we say yes and do, the more discontent we will become. I just built this great deck on my house. It took me hours and hours. Why? So we could stack stuff on it. (laughs) Right? Seriously, if you have a deck on your house, how many times in the last 365 days have you sat on it, drinking iced tea, relaxing with some friends, resting? Now, some of you, you probably can answer, oh, yeah, we use it every day. Great. But the rest of us, the other 220 people in this room, yeah, we need to use them for something other than to stack stuff on and under. Do you ever wonder if cows get bored? <laughs> In all seriousness, we were driving down the road one day and one of my kids asked that. I don't remember which, who it was. This was a long time ago. They were little. Hey, Dad, do you think cows ever get bored? Think about it. My answer to that is No. Why? Because they don't know any better, (laughs) right? They don't own a PlayStation. They don't have 150 channels, and they just added another 10. They don't, you know, they don't have a car and it breaks down. They just have what they have. And when a cow's standing out there on a summer day, lots of grass around them, and they're chewing their cud, just look at them and say, "Man, she looks content." I want to be like that cow. You see, we need to be sure that we're getting enough rest. Um, You know, my life, honestly, here in the last few weeks, I feel like it's been blistering by. You know, time is flying. It's the year 2017, for crying out loud. Wasn't it just 1986? 1986. So I, just grad, I mean, I keep trying to go back there. I keep trying to reminisce about the old days and all of that. And it's like, oh, if, you know. The bottom line is this. I, I need to get some rest. And I need to slow down. And I have a sneaking suspicion that there's a lot of people in this room that, that you need to hear that too. Um, Psalm 127, 1 and 2 says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. See here, it's, it's not the things that we have and the things that we do that gives us purpose and peace in life. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God. And what? All these other things will be added to you. God will take care of you. You know, the, do you think the sparrow worries about what he's going to eat in the morning? Yeah, but a sparrow doesn't have a car payment and a house payment. And a... Right. Right. You may need to begin today with a decision in your life that will just give you time to relax. Now, I, I heard a pastor once justify his working 80 to 90 hours a week with the statement, I'll rest when I get to heaven. Have you ever thought that or said that or heard somebody say that? That's not biblical. God did not say that's how we should live our life. He said we should work hard, that that we should work so that we have something to eat. That's biblical. But he also said, hey, that seventh day, what what are you supposed to do there? Hmm. Do all the things I didn't have time to do during the week because I was working. Right? Hmm. Number four, obey God. I heard a phrase that said this obedience is learning to live in the love of God. Obedience is learning to live in the love of God. See if we if we live in that love we stop trying to appease or perform or whatever and we just do the things that that he gives us. Hey. And and we need to be obedient. We we can't live life in the illusion that we can continue to live in disobedience to God. You know maybe Maybe you're here this morning and there's just sin in your life and you've been leaving it there and you've been living it and you've been somehow maybe justifying it or maybe you're just getting comfortable with the guilt. It's like, or maybe you're watching online or you're not here today because whenever you're here, you feel guilty for something in your life. If, if there truly is sin in your life, you need to surrender it, repent of it, See what kind of contentment begins to enter into your life because you're resting in the love of God, his love for you. Number five is this. Surrender to God. Surrender to God. Surrender to God. We were talking at Bible study on Wednesday night about giving our anxieties over to God. And one person in our Bible study said, yeah, I sort of have the fishing approach to surrendering things to God. It's like I cast it out there and then I reel it back in. I cast it out there to him and then, oh, I reel it back in, right? Cast it and let him have it. And that is an everyday thing because we do, we fish it we reel it back in. We reel it back in. We reel it back in. Let him have it. Surrender it. Surrender it. Surrender it. <clears throat> and that's it. That's the end of Philippians. I thank God for this letter. For all that he's taught us in the last ten weeks. And, and, and my prayer for you is that its truth will continue to seek in. Because honestly... Um, there isn't a more joyful, a joy-filled book of the New Testament than the book of Philippians. And there isn't, I don't think, a greater struggle or reach or whatever that that we have that our carnal selves wants to reach out there for in life. And, And if we will listen to what Paul teaches us and what God says to us through the book of Philippians every day, you know, I, I heard others, you know, my favorite verse is out of, out of the book of Philippians because, you know, they're, they're bent towards having anxiety and whenever that starts to creep in, they've memorized chunks of the book of Philippians and, and it's like, okay, okay, okay. Remind yourself, remind myself, remind myself and then surrender it, surrender it, surrender it. That's my prayer for all of us. You know, maybe you're in a place where it's just, uh, worship team, come on up. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where, um you, you, you are. I mean, you, you're sitting there going, you know what? I'm not sure my life could be any better than what it is right now. It's just good. My kids are in a good place. My, my life is in a good place. My finances are in a good place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are you going to do with if, if next week or the next week or the next week something disastrous happens and that anxiety wants to creep in? What are you going to do? Prepare yourself now for it Then, because there's always, you know, God's Jesus was very clear. In this world, you will what have trouble. You know, we're going to have trouble, but we don't have to be discontent even in the midst of it, as Paul says. We can be content. Uh, I'm going to pray. Ushers are going to come forward, and we're going to sing this final closing song. Mighty to save, um, so very true. These words, Father, thank you for the Book of Philippians. Thank you for for what you've challenged us with. Thank you for what you're teaching us and Father, I pray that each one of us here in this room as we go home, that we would see life with you, that you would be the center of our life, not just a piece of it, not just a of on the fringe, but father that, that we would be one hundred percent sold out to you every day and and that that we would experience contentment and when when we begin to feel discontented that we would surrender that to you, that we would surrender that to you. We would trust you. Father, thank you. Thank you for this this church, for these people and their their love for you and and for those that are here today, Father, and they're just searching. They wouldn't even consider themselves a follower. Father, I, I thank you for them being here and I pray that They would just continue to seek and search. Now, Father, as we take up our offering and as we sing this last song, as as a reminder of how much you love us and how great you are, go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.